How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. Mike, it's Mortal Kombat. You should be you should be writhing a little bit just to really sell the show. It is oh, true. My ankle. <laughs> good, good. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, and moxie. Tonight we have a bop and movie near and dear to my inner child's heart: the 1995 live action. Uh. Is it still copyright infringement if we get like the screaming Mortal Kombat voice and we put it in here? But I, I specifically state that it's a guy saying Mortal Kombat, but it, it's with a C instead of a K. I, I think that I think that falls in the fair use. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Uh, if you just want to sneak that in there, everyone, it's it's he's shouting Mortal Kombat with a C. It's different. Anyways, I'm your host Cody. Joining me tonight for this Bob movie are my co-host Mike. Say hello, Mike. This turkey leg is delicious. Kano managed to make turkey look disgusting as a child. Like, I, I don't know did, how he... You thought that was disgusting. I'm... I came podcast. around essentially, uh, but it, it took, like, Ren Fairs for me to get into turkey legs. Kano made it look gross. Oh, that was, like, <laughs> the best movie food in the world is everything no, on that goddamn fucking no, outdoor no. table from have hell. You not, have you not seen a Miyazaki movie? That's what food should be. That... Uh, yes, that's very good, but also not real. Oh, but... Oh. That's the thing about perfection. Yeah, you can never attain it. Uh, and also joining us is my other co-host, Jamie. Say hello, Jamie. So do you think that if Reptile had been placed inside of any statue with an open rib cage, he would have then used it as a stone flesh mech in the shape of a Lin Kuei ninja? Or was that just that one statue? Like, was that like kind of a threading the needle there? Oh, I thought you were going to go with, like, is 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 Reptile like a xenomorph in which it will take <laughs> on the properties of whatever statue it happens to fall into? That's kind of what I'm going for, yeah. Like, do you think it was necessarily that statue, or Reptile can just become Green Sub-Zero when he wants to? Look, I'm I'm still very confused about the bugs in, inside of this whole thing, so I can't explain any of the mechanics, and I will not attempt to. 
Do you think Reptile was surprised when he became a real boy? He paid Pinocchio only to die. Which yeah, I mean, is a fate of Pinocchio, too. Pinocchio doesn't realize how good he had. He could have lived forever, and instead he Pinocchio chose a, a piece very of shit. vessel. Yeah. A racist piece of shit. I mean, Pinocchio was always kind of a jerk, so I don't know if he deserved that body. I think he thought it was a prize, but it's really a curse. He's just going to fall apart and wither away. Yeah. Oh. oh, boy, Papa, now I get to meet God. <laughs> wow. Sorry, puppets don't have souls. They go straight to hell. It, it is, is like... Is he saying that after Geppetto, like, convinced him to allow Geppetto to smother him with a pillow? <laughs> Geppetto's been waiting to do this, but Pinocchio didn't have lungs until now. That's how you prove that you're a real boy, by dying. That's, how, that's, that's the defining trait of humanity. That's our superpower. We die. Can you imagine Geppetto as, like, um, an abusive father to a wooden puppet boy? Like, like uh, Pinocchio gets out of line, Geppetto just, like, grabs his leg and just snaps it like a twig. Ah! This is a prequel to The Fear. What does this have to do with Mortal Kombat? I don't know. Anyways, folks, uh, it, we're going to start the movie shortly. If you want to drink along with us, I have not created, but found. I want to put the blame on someone else for this in case it goes poorly. I have <laughs> for the first I time. found a recipe online for tonight's drink. Uh, this comes from Aggressive Comics, with a K, dot com series Secret of the Booze. Uh, I, I have not really tampered with this. I just stole their recipe. Uh, so if it sounds good, please check them out. And if I die tonight for mysterious causes, please blame them. Uh, so the, the drink we're drinking is the Goro. They made a whole line of drinks that were, were shots based on different MK fighters. Uh, I went for the Goro because Goro, it seemed like the silliest one to have to do on a podcast. Folks, you're going to need, like, one old-fashioned glass and two shot glasses to make this thing work. Uh, you're going to need a shot divided of Bailey's Irish Cream. You're going to need one shot divided of Kahlua, uh, a teaspoon or two of grenadine, and about a shot's worth of chocolate vodka. And if you don't have that, I guess just take, like, three-quarters of an ounce vodka and three-quarters of an ounce creme de cocoa. I don't know. That's, that's probably close enough chocolate vodka. Anyways... Take your old-fashioned glass, pour in the grenadine and the chocolate vodka, stir that up a little bit, then take your two shot glasses, fill both of them halfway with the Irish cream, then fill the remaining halves with Kahlua, stir both of those shots up so you get a good mix, and then you're going to stack them in the old-fashioned glass like the three stooges trying to get through a doorway. They're going to be holding each other up. Once you've got them balanced and you're ready to drink, you yank one out, down it. This will cause the second shot to fall into your, your old-fashioned glass and mix with the grenadine vodka deal. And then you chug that as well. Uh, I'm going to now attempt this. This, this is going to be fun because I have a lot of booze near all my recording equipment. And the goal is to basically make this splash everywhere. So this is going to be super fun. Okay. All right. I've got them, I've got them wedged. I'm going I'm to take a quick picture of this for posterity. Sorry, hold on. We can edit this out. Or not. This might be exhilarating, like when Harry Houdini would fuck around before doing a take. And they're like, is he drowning underneath there? All right. This is, uh, as the children say, go time. All right, I mostly did it. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> oh, God. That good, huh? I, I did not follow my own advice when I said, like, a teaspoon of grenadine. And you can easily put too much grenadine. Go, go less. 
Not bad. Very, very chocolatey. I spilled a little on myself. I'm gonna be, I'm gonna be very, very sticky for the remainder of this commentary. I should have gone with the Kintaro. So this is the perfect opening to a Mortal Kombat commentary. I am happy. Do techno. Wait. <laughs> Jamie, when we end this episode, can you end on a sad rendition of the Mortal Kombat theme? Yes. <laughs> I've been uh, waiting my whole life for this. That's yeah, a real treat days. for making it through the episode. It's been a while. All right. Uh, so now that we're all properly lubed up and sticky, Mike, uh, are, are you ready to count us down so we can start up Mortal Kombat? Oh, boy, am I ever ready. So excited. All right. One, two, three. Oh, boy. Best opening to a movie ever. God, I don't even want to talk about the movie. I just want to enjoy the beats. Does anyone else think, like, New Line Cinema and your mind just goes to this song, like, EDM immediately hits you? Oh, absolutely. There's two things the New Line Cinema logo make me think of. It's someone yelling Mortal Kombat... And the opening chords, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, the movie <laughs> soundtrack. It's like just either those way. Two. Either way, you're immediately craving pizza right now, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. It's amazing how well this gets me pumped for the movie. Like I don't understand it, but I just I just hear it and all of a sudden. I'm like, oh fuck! I got to see people punch each other. I'm just very excited. Not even ironically, I'm just very amped whenever I hear that music. <laughs> Uh, I, I was re-watching this for the commentary yesterday. I got a few minutes into it, I was like, something's not right here. Oh, wait, I need Pizza Hut. And just immediately ordered a pizza. Then <laughs> <laughs> all was right with the universe. That probably, yeah, I got I got some, uh, some Thai food before I, I watched it yesterday. And that was pretty good, but you're right, it wasn't as good as it normally is. It just wasn't the right mix. Sorry, I'm, I'm slacking on my movie facts. Uh, in case you didn't know, this this film was directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. Uh, we all know Paul from the Resident Evil we franchise. All know Paul. <laughs> you know, personally, he sends us emails. He's very nice. Uh, Event Horizon, his latest film, Monster Hunter. I'm going to say it's surprisingly fun. Uh, it's it's obviously not a perfect movie, but it's it's a really good time, and I think more people should check it out. It's, uh, that's the hill I'm going to die on this month. <laughs> Our screenplay is by Kevin Droney. Uh, Droney has a surprisingly small amount of writing credits on IMDb. Uh, the most recent credit I saw for writing was a screenplay for Wing Commander back in 1999. Ugh, CGI! Uh, our cast here, let's run through this quick. We have a lot of folks in this movie who are, are, in my mind, just synonymous with their Mortal Kombat characters, and they didn't necessarily go on to a bunch of other things, which is a shame, but at least they really nailed what they're doing in this movie. Uh, First off, we've got Christopher Lambert as Raiden. We all know him as the Highlander. So, fuck, I mean, what else do you need for a, for a resume? That's pretty awesome. Uh, Robin Show as Liu Kang. Unfortunately, not a super huge amount of credits out there, although we definitely love him in Beverly Hills Ninja. So he's got that. He's got the serious and the funny. Landon Ashby as Johnny Cage. This isn't related to Mortal Kombat, but I find it hilarious he hit landed a role in a movie called Sub-Zero in 2005. I want to say he did that intentionally, just to line up with this. Uh, he was also in Resident Evil Extinction, which I just want to say is not actually directed by Paul W.S. Anderson. But I'm going to assume that it had something to do with Paul W.S. Anderson for why he was in that. 
Uh, and surprisingly, 88 episodes of Teen Wolf. That guy just was all over the place, Teen Wolf. Wow. Yeah. Uh, I haven't seen that show, so that's pretty cool. But uh, something to watch, watch out for next time you watch that show. I, I think he plays like a sheriff or like one of the main cops in town. Uh, we've got Bridget Wilson Sampras as Sonya Blade. She was she actually had a, a pretty remarkable remarkable career. I mean, she went from Billy Madison to this movie, replacing Cameron Diaz at the last moment. Uh, more exciting to me personally, she was in I Know What You Did Last Summer and The House on Haunted Hill. That's that's pretty dope. Being in either one of those would be something to brag about the rest of your life. Being in both, hell yeah. She was also like twenty making this movie, which blows my mind. Right. <laughs> Fucking seasoned special ops agent Sonya Blade, not old enough to drink. Might be Sonya Who else do we have? We got uh, Talisa Soto as Katana. Uh, small saw connection. She was actually married to Casas Mandalore from '97 to 2000. Really? Saw. So that justifies uh, Casas Mandalore's existence. Right there. And she was in License to Kill in 1989. Uh, and oh boy, we gotta mention this. I don't have time to go through all of his credits, but Tom Woodruff Jr. plays the, the physical part of Doro underneath like the big animatronic puppet dealie. Uh, Kevin Michael Richardson provided the voice, and Frank Welker actually did the vocal effects, like the grunts for Goro. But I didn't realize that was uh, uh, like an all hands <laughs> kind of deal to get like 19 people involved to make Goro. Uh, we don't have, like I said, enough time to go through all the cool monsters Tom Woodruff Jr. has played in his career, or the special effects he's been supervisor for, but that guy has just had one of the coolest careers. Like, he's been involved in so many him amazing up. projects. He's, he's a fucking legend. So cool. Uh, I gotta talk faster, because Johnny Cage is entering in a really surprisingly cool shot. <laughs> like, it's just, it's it's so cool. It makes it, it such an impact. He's got that Oh, this beautiful... is one of the best character introductions in film, honestly. Right? I, I Well, and it's a, a good shot, a really good shot, which people kind of forget. Mortal Kombat 1 isn't just slapdash. No, Mortal tense. Kombat 1 is kind of prestige, which Very much so. fans immediately forgot about after Annihilation. Like, it will always amuse me how... Uh, nerd culture went from being astounded by how good this movie is to hating it and listing it at the top of bad mo video game movie lists in the space of like five years. It's very strange. I mean, like, right here, I would say it's like a perfect encapsulation of the movie. This is where you We've got decent fights. They're not overdoing it. They're not using a wirefu or anything. It's, it's, they've actually trained to just do, do some basic choreography that looks very good and professional. Uh, no really obvious stuntman cuts in my mind. But then you also have the joke of him going, okay, this is the part where you fall down. So you get that kind of sly humor on the side on top of convincing good fights. Also this weird Spielberg thing, which is another part I love about the movie. Just these random bits that someone with no understanding of Mortal Kombat would be so confused by. Like the, the friendship fatality later on against Scorpion. But they don't feel out of place, like stuff like the friendship fatality. Like they don't. I think there's some something magical about this movie. It's a fun twist to it that you don't necessarily understand, but you go, "I'm gonna go with the weirdness of it. I like it." Yeah, it's weird, but not in a. If you're not a fan of the game, you won't get this at all. Like you just kind of go along with it. 
It has uh, unusual texture, I would say. It, it's not as processed and smoothed out as some other stuff that you'd see maybe in theaters right now. Uh, oh, man. Okay, I'm going to run through my facts quick so we can focus here. Uh, the film was edited by Martin Hunter. Uh, he got a start in the film editing side with Full Metal Jacket. We've got a, a Kubrick alum inside of here. Uh, he also went on to edit Event Horizon for Anderson and The Chronicles of Riddick. So he's got some genre chops. The film came out August 18th, 1995. Budget was $18 million. The worldwide return on that was $124.7 million. So people forget this was a gigantic hit. Uh, and, oh, runtime of 101 minutes. Not too shabby, not too long, not too short. I recently saw people online complaining the new Mortal Kombat it's only like an hour 50, and I, I don't understand why they don't think that's long enough. No, it's they have to get to all like. the ninja lore. Okay, so we just missed a pretty cool special effect for the time. Obviously, it looks a little dated now with the flame effects, but this is essentially running on Terminator 2's technology, so it is cutting edge at the moment. They, they amped it up a little bit by having the morph happen and the kind of flare fire effect happen on top of it to give it some edge. If that you go back and rewatch the match between the actors, that's what I'm really impressed by. They got those guys to walk like as closely as they could together to make it really seamless. God, that effect holds up so well that two years ago, somebody gifted that into Shang Tsung uh, becoming Trump, and it was so one-to-one oh, no. -one accurate, it freaked everyone <laughs> the hell out. Also this, like, they went to real locations to film these, these parts, which... Granted, today, the CGI is so good, you normally don't even notice when a background's been augmented by CGI or someone's been composited into a background plate. I, I do love it, though, that they actually went or made a lot of these sets, and they didn't have to rely exclusively on just compositing people or, or, or faking sets or just doing backgrounds. I do think, really, when you go to a real place versus green screen, the thing a lot of people overlook and and feel like ah oh, it's just you know film fans being picky i do think it changes performance and tone of scene when you have actual locations to play with definitely so yeah well there's a change in depth that i, I like and it, i think it allows some extra freedom in the way you handle the camera and it, just something i really enjoy too is like we're watching now the characters have the freedom to move front to back in the scene, not just left to right. They really can just have this kid run for like 40 feet and have the camera follow behind them as they close in and really show off the architecture of the site they chose to film in. It, it makes it feel much more tactile, and I, I really love that. I, I feel like sometimes we're limited in modern-day movies where the background isn't all there, so there's maybe a couple of props they can interact with, but the actors aren't necessarily dancing around or jumping off of things because there's nothing there. They can't. It's, you know, it's going to have to be added later, and they got to match everything up. We're fighting for the fate of the world. That's why you left the temple. Oh, hey, Raiden. Wayne, isn't it? So I don't want to go too much into the, the plot of the movie because I recognize that it maybe isn't smart to focus on that in Mortal Kombat. But I've always been very confused by the evil machinations going on to assemble the fighters. Like, Shang Tsung is, is apparently plotting to grab the group of fighters he goes against. But he also desperately needs to win this last Mortal Kombat so he can control Earthrealm. Why, why is he not picking, like, the worst fighters he can find? He picks people that are actually fairly competent. Hey, he and just he has... assumed Johnny Cage would kill everyone. 
he yeah he's sneaky about it too like he has to trick johnny cage into showing up and johnny cage fucking wipes the floor with everyone he fights too much television so you're going to win although i will say in this moment raiden actually is the one who recruits the the star of the film and the hero so i guess it wouldn't have mattered what shang sun did anyways because no one else is truly important it's flimsy but i kind of take it shang pushing certain people into positions is he's attempting to stack the deck of fighters of his choice instead of raiden's choice johnny cage feels compromised to him sonia feels compromised to him that he she can put her against kano and she'll be kind of out of her element but also be able to use the rage against like it's all people who are fighting for reasons that have nothing to do with mortal Kombat, and i think to shang that puts him at an advantage i definitely see that my my interpretation of that was always just it doesn't count unless it's actually the best and brightest fighters earth has to offer Otherwise, Shang Tsung could just, like, beat up a bunch of hobos and then conquer Earth. That's what I've wondered about. Like, just, just, you just have Rector Hoyer from Hobos' shotgun show up, but he doesn't have the shotgun. <laughs> the hobo would but fucking it is, it kill is. Goro. Uh, oh, absolutely. Would. He probably would. That's why he didn't get invited. But, um, oh, I love all these sparks. Are they needed? Probably not. But you gotta love the atmosphere. Uh, I was gonna say, oh, it's kind of a trademark or a hallmark of, of Mortal Kombat in general, though, I think, to have these really over-the-top arch villain plans to, to assemble and recruit and motivate people. Just think of, like, any time they go into the backstory of Sub-Zero and, and Scorpion. You know, it always has to be a, well, they wouldn't hate each other naturally, but a sorcerer got involved in fake being Sub-Zero to murder Scorpion's family, so then Scorpion would have to die and then come back to life and also join the crusade against Sub-Zero's people, but also be on the bad guy's side to destroy Earthrealm. But it's very important he kills the first Sub-Zero so that he can be transformed into the cyborg Noob Sabat. That is completely unrelated to the second heroic Sub-Zero, who has the most appearances in the franchise. Jesus Christ, I'm so confused. I have I have a very cursory understanding of, of Mortal Kombat game continuity, so this that was, that was a lot for me. Uh, keep in mind, this is all before time travel becomes an important part <laughs> of the series. Because at this point, uh, I, and I'm not, I'm not knocking. I fucking love Mortal Kombat mythology, especially the newer stuff. But it's pretty much X Men at this point. It gets wacky. It's Kung Fu X Men. I'm, I'm always impressed by that. Honestly, how many fighting games are out there where if you're just playing the multiplayer mode, like you're just doing arcade against your buddies because it's Friday night and you're bored? Would you assume have deep backstories? It turns Very out, little. Oh, I don't know. I would say a lot actually. Like if you're if you're playing, uh, like any of the Mortal Kombat's have like a surprisingly deep mythology buried behind the story. Uh, Soul Calibur games have a lot going on that I don't understand. Oh, well, I yeah. think the difference is most fighting games have mountains of lore. But Mortal Kombat's the only one that really makes that part of the game. Like, yeah. every single Street Fighter character has a fucking novel you could write about them, but that never really affects the game. That's just there as extra lore if you, like, really like the world and the characters. Mortal Kombat, for a long time, 
has really made its signature being like we're the fighting game franchise where you're actually coming to see what happens to the world and the characters and not just for the gameplay which is hilarious because it's Mortal Kombat's mythology but uh, post uh, Mortal Kombat uh, Apocalypse they are uh, Armageddon uh, they've um, they've managed the lore in a way where a new Mortal Kombat game is just watching a season of an animated series. There's really not that much difference writing and mythology-wise. Yeah, it's 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 really the only fighting game franchise that's completely narrative-driven instead of gameplay-driven. At least I'd argue. I just, Someone's yelling right now, but I can't hear you. <laughs> ah, suckers. I do appreciate that, even in the movie version of it, where it's essentially just, just, you know, the characters are here so they can fight cool. We we still get distinct characters. Obviously, yes, they're paper thin. We're not looking at any of these guys like they're, they're fucking Citizen Kane. Uh, but we get a good handle on them. We kind of understand their motivations and all. And they're fun and distinct. Like, you understand who Sonya is as a person. You understand, you know, Johnny Cage is a conceited douchebag who actually has the skill to pay the bills, but he's such a dick no one wants to work with him. Liu Kang isn't just, like, the straight-faced action hero. Like, he's, his interactions with Johnny Cage show he's kind of got a sardonic side to him where he doesn't mind Riley shitting all over Johnny Cage for being a pompous <laughs> ass. <laughs> Sub-Zero! Also ninjas, uh, Scorpion Sub-Zero, deadliest of enemies. <laughs> <laughs> the King Kong and Godzilla of the Mortal Kombat universe, as I'm to understand this is what I love about this film so much, and you know, what separates it from so many other adaptations, video game or otherwise. They recognize they didn't have the time in the movie to really go into the traditional Sub-Zero and Scorpion rivalry, but they were faithful enough to acknowledge that under normal circumstances, their relationship would be much different. <laughs> There's something that Kazanoff said that was kind of it blew my mind from like a producer saying it standpoint, and you could see that his. And we should go into just a second. I'm sorry to interrupt you, Mike, but we have not introduced one of the main players in this saga, Larry Kazanoff. I, I think like it might make more sense to even go into that sidebar before you make your point, just because that guy's so important to all of this story. <laughs> yeah. So so for for people who have not paid attention to the ownership and history of the Mortal Kombat franchise, Larry Kasanov was the producer that made this film happen. He saw Mortal Kombat and, and was so endeared by it, he immediately tried to go to the creators and the owners and say, like, give, give me the rights to this, and I swear to God, I'm going to make it into a movie, I'll make it into a musical, I'll make it into a TV show, you name it, I will produce it as a medium. Which they thought was insane. Like, even the guys who made Mortal Kombat thought that was dumb. But he kept at them, and eventually he was able to make this film happen. And no one thought it was going to work. Even the people on New Line thought he was just going to make a colossal bomb. Yeah, he was essentially to Mortal Kombat what Michael Uslan was to the Batman movies. Yeah. Like, like if, you, if you're from our generation, the reason you had Mortal... Mortal Kombat action figures and a Mortal Kombat cartoon and Mortal Kombat on your lunchbox and your book bag was because he made sure that that happened. Like, he saw Mortal Kombat, the arcade game, and saw Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, part two. Your enemy 
And I think it's so interesting. He's right. Obviously, it worked out because as a kid, I had the toys. I watched the cartoon. I originally, I didn't play Mortal Kombat the game, but I was still a Mortal Kombat fan because I had all the weird ancillary stuff. It was one of the few times where there was something there because the show went on to eleven movies. Yeah, but it's still hilarious because you go on to have such an important role in the sequel, which fell apart and and did a lot of damage to the franchise. Oh, we'll get there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, that's a different I have story. Crazy cats and all stories to tell on that one. <sighs> so anyway, sorry to interrupt you, Mike, but it's like, boy, we we gotta just talk about that guy first before we just start casually mentioning his name. Well, the the thing that Kazanov said that I was really into, and I do think is what really separates Mortal Kombat from other video game adaptions, and really is the way most should approach video game adaptions was Kazanov didn't just see like, oh, Mortal Kombat's really popular, I should capitalize on this on and make a movie. He was actually into the whole vibe of it, the story of of it. And it's just Mortal Kombat one. Like it's just it's just the Mortal Kombat one arcade game. But he was really into the like the mythology the work that went into that and saw the um it's all the Enter the Dragon influence. I mean, this is the Enter the Dragon structure for the movie, essentially, and and saw and he called it Enter the Dragon meets Star Wars, which is a very apt description. But he viewed making the movie as we're not really adapting a video game. We're we're doing the we're doing the story of it. Like the game is just one way to do that story. This is another yeah, way a... to do that story. There's a mythical true story of Mortal Kombat out there somewhere, and every medium is just a version of it trying to get to that essence. Which is something I've never heard anyone making a video game movie say, and I think that might be the smartest thing I've ever heard someone say about adapting these things. No, don't adapt the video game. Pretend you're adapting the story the video game was based on. Somehow I always forget this Death Eater from Harry Potter logo just appears in the movie for a second. <laughs> I love this so much. And then the entire plot of Mortal Kombat The Journey Begins uh, takes place no! between the scene and the <laughs> Welcome so- to Shang Tsung's shitty mystical boat. Oh god, the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> what a weird version of, of, of Shao Kahn. That. I don't know about you guys, but fucking... Carrie screaming, it has begun on that boat is fucking burned into my brain for the rest of my life. Oh, <laughs> everything he, he says. That's amazing. That's uh, one of my I, earliest film memories. I, I forgot to mention uh, Carrie Hiroki uh, Tagawa as Shang Tsung when I was going through the, the actor list. Really, probably the MVP of the movie. Like, what a, a delicious evil performance. Like, there's no humanity to it. He's just being as evil as possible. And I love it. Um, fun fact about uh, Tagawa, his his career started in 1986 as an uncredited role in Big Trouble in Little China. He's one of the, the gang-fighting swordsmen. Oh, I love uh, that. Yeah, and, and he still has movies coming out. He's got uh, a film coming out, Reagan, I believe, this year, about Ronald Reagan. And another one called Sky Sharks that'll be coming out sometime in the future. <laughs> and so he's that still playing still making movies. Yeah, they got him back for some of the more recent games. Wasn't he like a DLC kind of deal for Eleven? Yeah, it was a DLC deal. He was in Season 2 of Mortal Kombat Legacy. Oh, that's dope. I haven't seen him in Season 2. It's yeah, cool. I, 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 oh. 
Yeah, outside he's so of, wonderful in this film. Outside of the new film, he's pretty much the branded Shang Tsung as far as WB is concerned. That's pretty awesome. He's Matt Ryan, essentially. Well, that's the amazing thing about this movie. You gotta think, okay, so this movie came out in 1995. The original Mortal Kombat came out in 92. So there wasn't that much time between the phenomenon starting and, and, and this movie coming out. They're, they're, Mortal Kombat 3 had just come out like a month before this, I believe. Something pretty close to it. So they couldn't really crib from that movie or game so much because you know, it was in development. So they, they only had two Mortal Kombats to work off of to devise all of what would end up being the most iconic parts of the series. Uh, some would say, and some lawsuits would say, that this movie is really Mortal Kombat and everything that followed after it is cribbing from this rather than the original game. There's definitely a give and take there. Yeah, I mean, I mean K- Kano alone exists because of this game. Like, if it were, I mean, because of this movie. If it weren't for that performance, Kano would either I feel like either it would have faded away as a character or would have just stayed proto Kano and not really evolved into anything iconic. Yeah, yeah. he was so, very different. So folks at home, yeah, before this started, Kano was a character. Um, I believe he was Japanese-American. He still had the faceplate. And because in this version of the movie, everyone mistook the actor's Cockney accent as Australian, the, the, the future games just kind of stole that and went, well, that's what the people like. And they remodeled the character. They changed his nationality, his, his voice, and everything to make him like Kano from the film. <laughs> the actor also was putting on a fake Cockney accent. So Kano is Australian because of someone mishearing an accent that wasn't real in the first place. <laughs> so there's like five layers of bullshit when it comes to Kano, which is perfect for the character. Most people didn't even know that actor was an Australian until after he died. I didn't. I Well, I was a child. One thing I wanted, we just passed by one of the worst bits of CGI in the movie. <laughs> uh, and, and you got to cut the movie slack. This is this is very early in CGI. This is thing. super early. Too early. Yeah, and they were they were I would say too ambitious, especially for the budget they had. Their, their budget's nothing. This is there, this is a very small movie yeah, in comparison to a lot of the things that came out at the time. I mean, honestly, most of the optical CGI effects, there's something that has personality to them with the way they're done that I yeah. think adds to the fantasy element. Reptile doesn't look good. Like there's no real way to spin that, but there is something oddly charming about it. The weird thing to me is he looks a lot like the CGI space monkey from Lost in Space. That yeah, was very much so. Several years much. after this, like it's almost like the same goddamn CGI creature. He just put on a slightly different costume. And yet, it wasn't until doing research for this that I realized Goro's mouth is CGI, and I, that's what? just flawless. Yep. Really? Oh my god! That's, that's why the lip syncing is good. I, like, I don't think it's 100% CGI, no. but anytime, anytime his mouth is moving, it's CGI to get oh the lip syncing right. Yeah, yeah his mouth was a puppet, but it uh, was augmented with CGI to, to make sure it matched perfectly. We should talk more about Goro when he comes up, because that suit is a marvel. That's, that's it, like the incredible. modern creature from the Black Lagoon. Uh, this scene it always got me, because we get the, the first example of how cool Sub-Zero is. And also how the movie was able to flaunt the PG-13R distinction. They could have graphic murders, just no blood, 
and it couldn't be like real humans being hurt. You had to be anonymous people or monsters that that were destroyed totally. And in this case, you know, a guy gets frozen to a block of ice and splintered on the ground with a decapitation effect. But because he's all frozen, there's no blood leaking. The MPA went, yeah, no, that that seems perfectly fine for PG-13 movie. That's the magic of Mortal Kombat. So many of the most violent murders are fantasy murders. So, yeah, you can just sneak that in for the matinee crowd. Yeah. Also, can we just talk about how good the score of this movie is? Outside of, like, the soundtrack uh, stuff, which is excellent, the actual score and how it fits into the techno soundtrack, but with, like, all of this, like, a lot of traditional, like, Chinese instruments and music... It, it feels like if the Shaw Brothers had released a kung fu movie that just happened to take place in hell. Like, it, found, it seems like they found the score for the perfect Mortal Kombat movie like, that just already existed somewhere. <laughs> God, Shang's coat. <laughs> I, I love how much Shang Tsung looks like a uh, modern triple uh, A game developer in Japan. <laughs> doesn't he look? Doesn't Shang Tsung look like he should be filming his uh, Kickstarter video? <laughs> I have to say, yeah, man, Katana as a too. kid, Sub Zero was just so cool. I, I think I was introduced to this film, as far as my memory goes, for the first time in '96, and it was a babysitter. My parents had friends over, so they put me in their bedroom with like one of those old school TV VCR mobile combos that you can move around your house real easy. And they just put me back in their bedroom with that and a couple of rented tapes. And I just re ended up watching Mortal Kombat over and over for the entire time this party was happening. And man, like all the characters just seem so cool. This movie, honestly, to a, to a like a six, seven, eight year old, is every cool thing you'd ever ask for. There's ninjas. There's like kung fu. There, there's just, oh man, cool CGI effects, which honestly don't work well now, but as a kid, you, you're more forgiving. There's Kano, who you realize is like an asshole, but he's like a fun asshole. There's a four-armed monster man. There, 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 oh man, punches the balls. It's really everything uh, like an eight-year-old could ask for. This is the perfect kids movie, accidentally. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's a martial arts movie that's also a fantasy that's also like a dark fantasy. <laughs> I want to say, though, can you... What was the last film you've seen that had this many people with, like, 0% body fat? That's pretty incredible. Uh, in this, Marvel movie? Everyone in the film, though. Like, even the extras are all goddamn ripped. The the anonymous ninjas in the background are all in better shape than I could ever dream to be <laughs> if I had a professional <laughs> trainer. Easy, Welker, easy. Goro, you're by yourself. Yeah, <laughs> and I love the introduction of Goro as just this this monstrous shadow that they're freaked out by, and then we get to actually meeting Goro, and he has a conversation like he's actually a thinking creature that for some reason spends his time walking around screaming and gazing at people through steel grates like he's a prisoner. He's like the fan of the opera, but like with all the strength to leave the cellars and just beat everyone up who makes fun of him. Technically, he's royalty. He owns all this shit. Right, yeah. It's very weird. <laughs> I do love that, though. I, I love the fact that Goro, even though he's the number one henchman, isn't just a screaming monster. 
He's not necessarily the smartest character in the world, as we'll see later on, but he's smart enough to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. He's not just blindly following, and he's not just a paycheck. He seems like he actually has some loyalty and respect for his boss. And he's shown with, like, he has a dignity to him, which is kind of amazing that they give that to a puppet. Goro was scary as hell as a kid. Like, oh, yeah. the scene right here where he gets up and you're like, oh, fuck, he's gigantic, and Kano's being an asshole. Okay, now I'm watching his mouth. Open those lips, Goro. Yeah, it's God. still not perfect, but then you remember, oh, yeah, so it was like 1995. <laughs> I yeah. mean, the fact I never noticed that there's CGI going on with his mouth is astounding. And I've seen this movie so many times, Very I've never paid so. attention to it. It's, I mean, it's basically it, an invisible effect to me. The only way that the puppets actually is a real bummer is that she just can't really fight. Which is kind of yeah. Goro's thing. So, I, I am disappointed with the new movie that they don't utilize a puppet in any way, but it's not like even today you could actually have a puppet have a martial arts battle. No, you'd have to find a way to like have him walk around for talking scenes as the puppet, and then switch over to a CGI version for the fights. And it would probably and never the transition, match. There's, no, yeah. the transition would look funny. And you can't do with because of his forearms, you can't do man in suit. Nope, the proportions get all fucked up. Yeah, it's it, that that is a weird, like a sad catch twenty two with using even an incredible puppet is once you invest in the puppet. You got the puppet. There's no going back. You, you, right. That will it will never blend with CGI. Well, from what I was was hearing on different you know videos talking about the making of Mortal Kombat, the suit for Goro cost one million dollars. Yep. And to put that in perspective, the budget for this movie was eighteen million dollars. One eighteenth of the entire film went on just making a really cool forearm puppet. Remember. And this... is, you got to make Goro work because I think he's the draw for the movie. Everyone remembers Goro when the film's done. He he's like your unique landmark villain that everyone's like, oh shit, that's more common. Cover the soundtrack. Yeah. he was he was the entire teaser poster, just the silhouette of Goro. Because <laughs> what the say, fuck else was on worry, screen kids, like this we're at doing the time? Goro. Like the closest you would get to a monster like this is something like Big Trouble in Little China years earlier, but even that was like kind of an adult movie. Yeah. Never been so close to absolute victory, which is why I've come No, I, Goro's amazing. I, I love Goro, and I think he holds up pretty damn well, honestly. The fact he holds that he's a puppet excellently. mostly still works. I like the fact that you can see him moving around and just looks right in sunlight. There's a His kind of a faulty herky really jerkiness well. to him. Yeah. yeah. And they do there's, there's something about puppet them. suits that are flawed that makes them believable and real. I understand the why they decided not to bring him to Thailand, though. Yeah. Yeah, I, I was going to say, like, that, like, think of how expensive that is. And then think, there was a brief moment where they were going to fly that fucking thing to Thailand. And they're like, no, no, this does not leave the studio. In 120-degree heat, because that thing would have survived. Right, they, yeah, across salt water and all that shit, nah. They had to remove all of the water from the koi ponds in his in one of his fight scenes, because they were worried it would fall over, and some of the water would splash on it. I mean, that yeah, that would totally destroy the costume. Just imagine how hard making Jaws was for the same reason, and that thing's just out in the salt water. That's why cool there's no shark in that movie. Are. 
I okay, will just aside, out of, we mentioned the yeah. score before, and this this cracked me up because I had to look it up quick because I realized I didn't mention the composer. The composer for the film is George S. Clinton. And if you go to his Wikipedia article, the first thing it says is not to be confused with George Clinton, funk musician, which is the first Could thing I did. I saw George S. Clinton on the list. I'm like, Could you imagine? Musician? I was very I feel like George like, Clinton would have been in into Skorg and Mortal Kombat. No way. <laughs> God, Jax would have gotten so funky. He also, oh, get this. He did the score for Austin Powers 1. Oh, and the sequels. He did all three Austin Powers's. Those are those are honestly good scores too, considering they have to be comedy pastiches and, and homages to oh, different eras yeah. that most of us don't know. Powers movies are actually very well scored. No, yeah. Listen to it by by itself; it's actually really good. This score is honestly kind of a masterpiece, though. Like the amount of just <laughs> layers that's that's in here. It really, I mean, it gets overshadowed by just how good that that EDM song is they threw at the front. <laughs> which is a shame like both are very good and either one by themselves would really support the movie in a great way but when you have them both together one's going to overshadow the other they play off each other really well I don't think anybody guess. went this I mean, way because the spider webs haven't been walked through <laughs> ever you know this is a good path no one's ever taken it I smell something that throne you know there is something I want to talk about that I don't ever see anyone bring up in regards to this movie or something, or really the, particularly the early 90s, which I actually think did a really good job at this. This is a, like, big action movie in, like, 1995, starring an Asian lead, and it's not treated in the film like it's abnormal or a big deal at all. Yeah, Lou's just a guy. Lou, I mean, Lou an incredibly ripped man. Well, Lou technically has a ridiculous, like, super arch backstory. And yet, he, he's kind of played like you'd play any other uh, action lead in a 90s movie, and that's so beautiful. And there was no discussion is... of, like, we need to change Lou Kang to a white guy. Yeah, they were just very picky about which Asian guy they, they put in place of Lou Kang. Yeah, shall uh, I think... Mostly because uh, I knew like, it had to be someone who was very good in the role because they carried the entire film. If they started yeah. martial arts, the whole thing suffers. Yeah, Robin Shaw had to audition, like, what, seven times? Yeah, like, had, all he the had to read. He had to read for every single person in the chain of command at New Line up to, like, I think, like, the president or something. with you guys? Yeah, it's, it's one of those things that makes you... Uh, wince a little bit whenever you look at how colorblind casting could be in 90s movies and then you think today where every time uh, casting is either colorblind or a person of color is cast as a as a character who isn't white there's a press release attached to it yeah, it's weird how we've just kind of walked backwards. Yeah, and recently I, I I made the mistake of reading some forum posts just about the new Mortal Kombat, and the director basically said, "Hey, we didn't include Johnny Cage because we're trying to go with like a, a different cast that's not just all white guys." And I figured we can include Johnny Cash, yeah, Cash, Johnny Cage in the future. <laughs> I hurt myself today. <laughs> 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 
I'm just imagining Johnny Cash walking out of a fucking smoke portal. And then immediately getting destroyed by Sub-Zero. Just like, it's brutal. The poor man is just getting ripped apart. Uh, but anyways, anyways, the director made a pretty innocent statement. Just like, hey, I'm trying to make a movie that's not just Johnny Cage. I wanted to make a movie that's kind of international with a bunch of different characters from around the world. Because it's supposed to be a tournament representing the best the planet has to offer. And the forum posts uh, going against this were just like, oh, it's so PC. Oh my god. How, 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 how. And just pointless bitching. People who haven't even seen the movie are just assuming it's bad because they didn't include Johnny Cage and they're they're twisting the words of the director to say, hey, it's bad. He's 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 somehow racist for being anti-racist. It's very See, frustrating. It's like if anything, if you're making a Mortal Kombat movie, you should have 90 characters. And like three of them are white, and and half of those white guys are also machines. That's accurate to the games. Yeah. Mortal Kombat is not a white franchise, except for <laughs> unless you count the voice acting, which is just Ed Boon over and over. Toasty. <laughs> God, Shang Tsung, it's got to be so hot out there. Take your jacket off. <laughs> My Don't God, you see he your really warriors are listening? That's it. Yeah, he's he's conjuring air conditioning right now. He stole the soul of a lizard, so he's actually quite comfortable. Uh, but going back to Johnny Cage, it is a trip rewatching this, like as an adult, and just seeing how much this movie shits on its one white male heroic character, like who isn't like in a mentor role, like uh, Raiden. Like, the first time we see Johnny interacting with the other characters, he assumes that Liu Kang is going to carry his bags and throws money at him, and immediately tries to fuck Sonya Blade, and neither of them are, are giving him the time of day. It is entire a goddamn his face. Immediately. <laughs> jo Johnny Cage's entire arc in this movie is being put through the ringer so he can earn being the second support, like supporting actor in this movie. Like he he has to fight to become the hero's best friend. The and take character. that role. It's the trope of like, oh, the the Asian martial artist is really the hero, but they're assigned to the sidekick role in the eyes of the audience. But reversed. Like Johnny Cage does most of the cleanup in this work. He takes out Goro, he takes out uh, Scorpion. But he's the sidekick like Luke Kang really does the final important thing. I mean, meanwhile, Lou doesn't really have so much of a character arc in this movie. He has a mission he's setting out to do, and then he completes that mission. And I he, really kinda, he changes a little bit, because at the front he's so grief-focused that he's turned his back on, on his beliefs and, and that kind of job. Yeah, he, he, well he comes developed. to accept things kind of throughout. Yeah, yeah. Through punching. But, but I, I like how uh, Lou's... Lou's oh, journey fuck. is so much. <laughs> oh. <laughs> so I always loved how they got the, they gave the other fighter a lion roar just so it's still slightly <laughs> Mortal Kombat esque, even though it's just just a random. Once again, so God, just, the, the hair on display in this movie. Let's just just appreciate once more. <laughs> Tagawa having to deliver these front lines straight face. Your soul is mine. While I'm blinking at the camera, like he's so into it too. Yeah, it's it's a lot of conviction for a thing that should be Saturday morning cartoon silly. And this like guy Lambert. doesn't bat an eye. He's like, like, nope, I'm into it. Look at everything he brought to brought to Raiden. Right. They really, uh, I guess, to go with the current meme and 
confirmed. They understood the assignment. I'll show myself out because that joke is going to be stupid by the time it actually, this podcast reaches the air in like two days. Oh, I get it now. God damn it. All right, a little bit of history. I mentioned this previously. I was I was shocked to find out Cameron Diaz was actually cast to be in this film based on her strength in dailies on The Mask. She had been training to be Sonya, and she broke her wrist, and they had to replace her very late in, in filming. Uh, this scene here, I, I believe, uh, was, was kind of pushed towards the back of the film so they could give time for the replacement actress to actually learn how to do her physical moves and fight Kano. It, it wouldn't have worked if she was just cast off the street and then had to do this kind of fight while everyone else has been training for three months. Yeah. Hey, sexy. Well, I think I think '90s Cameron D is probably could have pulled this off. I, I did you miss me? Like this chick is Sonya. Oh, it would have been so, that, so it really weird. Worked it would have been so. It, I, I just could not imagine. Now. It would have yeah. been fine. Like I think as far as '90s Diaz go, I think like two years later Diaz would have been completely miscast. Like, oh, Mascara Diaz, I think, could have been, like, serviceable as Sonya, but, like, this is Sonya. Probably even then too big for the movie, honestly. She would well, overshadow people. Well, it's weird. It's not that Diaz can't do action roles, but it's like, when I when I picture Diaz as Sonya Blade, I'm just imagining her in Charlie's Angels, and that's cool, but that's also not Sonya. Yeah. Like, it, like it's, it's weird. Like, Sonya despite being like very much like your standard like er, like 90s video game hot blonde tough girl chick there's a certain like square jawed uh quality to her like both uh both in how she's depicted in like physicality that I think that uh, this actress pulls off perfectly that I don't think a lot of other actresses at the time would have gotten well, Sonya's supposed to be, like, it's kind of a a gender-flopped, uh, like, Dolph Lundgren character, essentially. He's way taller for that. He's, like, nine feet tall. All right, I just want to mention before Kano exits the film, how great this works. The swagger on this guy as he comes out and just starts beating the <laughs> shit out of people. <laughs> and then has his, like, please, Sonya, no! Whiny moment before he gets his next snap, which was an, an add-in later. They originally, apparently, had his character live... Yeah, so much of this movie was made up on the fly. They were still like they were still do- writing the script whenever they were in pre-production. A lot of the dialogue is ad-libbed, and a lot of action beats were just like made up as they were filming. Because Anderson had only ever done shopping before this. Like this is his first action movie, his first effects movie, his first. Of most things. Well, like, didn't the Fucking DP crazy. actually have to come and tell him, like, how to do, how to film, like, action scenes because he's trying no, to do a show? It was Shao. It was Shao yeah, who was like, you know, you there's a such thing as coverage, right? <laughs> yeah, because he was Shao just making them do the entire punk. scene in, like, one shot. Yeah, he was just doing masters. Okay, more bad CGI. I'm, I think it's mostly the design of Scorpion's hand tails. They're, they're overly complicated and too much is going on and the CGI can't support them. Plus, it's very silly to think these things have almost infinite length until they don't anymore. Okay, I, as much as I adore this movie, I've always been very confused by the train of thought that led to video game Scorpion 
and movie scorpion having a snake that comes out of a dimensional portal in his hand. Yeah, well, this whole thing is pretty weird. Even the setup for it, all the other fights are, like, in front of crowds. Johnny Cage here is just wandering the forest when he gets attacked by a death ninja. And it's made even weirder, because this whole scene films like it was just filmed after the fact. It's not. It's only when this happens and the shadow kick transfers them into the second location. This is additional footage. They went back and decided to expand the fight. What a weird yeah. short fight that would have been. It's without crazy this. to think that scorpion fight was that and that the shadow kicks him and it's over this is really where it gets fun when johnny cage starts doing like the the, the monkey bars things all over the place and what a set too they're transported like a so weird cool. hell there's just cobwebs and sticks and skulls it doesn't make any goddamn sense i love it oh the set of texas chainsaw massacre 2 <laughs> exactly yeah and scorpion yeah, gets extra lines welcome it's weird. If you had told me uh, that one part of this fight was shot later, I would have assumed it was the, the forest scene. Oh, yeah. Because this part's so much better. It really, like, the choreography is more exciting. The background is so thought out and cool. Well, it, it'd be kind of impressionistic. Every, like, the stunts are bigger. Everything about this portion is better, and it seems like the part they should have been aiming for because it's a key piece of the movie. Instead, it was, oh, hey, we were pretty successful before. They gave us a couple extra bucks. Let's go back and, and pad things out. Yeah, because I think, wasn't the, I think the uh, two uh, big notes they got from their test screenings, the one time in film history when test screenings were actually helpful, they said... We don't like the temp music. That's just regular orchestral music. And none of the fights seemed to last more than, like, two minutes, despite this being a fighting. kung fu movie. Yeah. I, I cannot imagine how this movie would have worked without the this and the, the reptile fight. Like, it's a martial arts yeah. This doesn't work if you cut out scenes like this. This is the... I would say the best fight of the movie. It's kind of a shame the Sub-Zero fight is so short compared to this, because it makes this seem like it's more important. Yeah. Honestly, I imagine taking Spider-Man 2 and cutting out the subway sequence. Oh, yeah. That's what, what these two fights add to Mortal Kombat. And these guys are going so hard at it. Uh, Ashby apparently got kicked in the kidneys at one point during this and was pissing blood several days after. He said it was like the most pain he's ever been in his life. And it's just astounding. You look at all the cool-ass stunts they did for this and the poundings they give each other. Obviously, you, you know, there's some stuff involved, tell this is but it's so after cool. production. Like, this is where everybody figured out how to do this, essentially. Like, mostly, they, they Ander like, mostly Anderson, of course, but it makes you more bummed out that Anderson didn't come back for the, for the sequel, like, now that he's got how to do martial arts stuff. Huh? This is very much a fight scene from the director of Event Horizon. Oh, we get the Spielberg zoom. <laughs> I'm just so a sucker clips. for people doing somersaults. Yeah, Same. in the midair. Up oh, here it comes. I was so confused as a kid because I didn't get the understanding that he was actually like a zombie, despite him being, you know, battling inside of a hull of skulls. And I love how there's really no explanation for what Scorpion is in the movie. This whole scene was so confusing as a child. Like, you should roll with it because you just think you're too stupid to understand what's happening. But there, there's a man who just pulled his face off and became a skeleton that breathes fire. He's, he gets just kicked apart. He explodes. And then there's just a Johnny Cage autograph that flutters to the ground. And it's, it's 
great because that's how movies should be. Like you have the power to do these things and make them make kind of fairy tale logic. And yet so many people are afraid of not appearing realistic they don't do weird ass shit like this. I'm so mad no. video game Scorpion is not filled with lava. <laughs> I, I never noticed you can see the hand fly away. Yeah, the hand flies like at the screen. If this were a 3D movie, that'd be the best part. Wait, is the application there that Scorpion had the headshot? <gasps> Did he just want an autograph? The whole time, Scorpion was his biggest I used to fan. Take that, that's how I used to take it as a kid. Is that ah. Scorpion just really wanted an autograph? What did you guys get into Mortal Kombat? Did you did you see it like in theaters? Your parents take like five six year old use to the theater. I saw it in theaters. I was uh, a huge Mortal Kombat the... fan, so yeah, this is one of those movies that just was always there. I have no first memory. Like I, w- I was born with this VHS <laughs> in my hands. Apparently, Jimmy, right. you were born with the Mortal Kombat Dragon logo on your shoulder, and someday you'll have to fight Mortal Kombat. <gasps> it's a birthmark. That means I was born with it. <gasps> Oh, like wait, no, according to Annihilation, but... that means you're um, related to Raiden and Shao Kahn. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah that's, you're royalty. I got some of that uh, the, the, that Ramar blood in me. Actually, no, it's it, it doesn't necessarily mean you're related. Remember, didn't like Cyborg have one on him, too? It could just be like a passport they slap on anyone so they have access. There is no hope. You're lame, Jamie. Yeah, you're back to just being a henchman. Henchman. Uh, uh, t- like my my tattoo turns into a tiny bat and then flies away. <laughs> this fight also really confused me because somehow they just let Katana, and even though she's royalty and 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 like she shouldn't be hurt, like she has protection over her more than anyone else, and then she's just giving really obtuse hints to Liu Kang, who's too dense to understand any of them. And in the end, she just kind of withdraws from the fight. I'm like, it's Mortal Kombat. Shouldn't it be like, you live or you die, or Shang Tsung steals your soul? I, I, this person, this scene is a, is a personal nitpick of mine. I just don't like it. <laughs> I adore Granted, this. You don't have any ways for, like, Liu Kang and Katana to talk to each other otherwise, so they gotta make it exciting. Yeah, I adore this movie, and this is such an amazing translation of Mortal Kombat. This movie does not understand how Mortal Kombat works, like the actual like the actual tournament, like one iota. The amount of times flawless victory is said in this movie for no reason. It's amazing. That's the Mortal Kombat thing. There are no flawless victories. Everyone gets punched. To backtrack a little, we should have mentioned this before. So because of Mortal Kombat, we actually have the game rating system that we have to this day of, you know, like mature games and, and all that kind of stuff. Parents were in a tizzy about being able to do a fatality where you rip out someone's spine and uh, I've just distracted myself. Look at the floor right now of the scene. <laughs> Look at how amazing the set design is in this. And the movie never goes out of its way to show off all the hard work that was being done to make these elaborate, cool sets. And I think the part of that is probably just because uh, Anderson was a new director, so he probably didn't think like, "Oh, I should get a thousand shots of like all the the weird shit that goes into the set, so we can show it off." But it kind of works in the film's favor too, because you can gloss over it and just know in the back of your head that this was well developed. Yeah, that's the thing I miss the most about pre-water world set porn in movies. It's like, that was, even if you were just doing like a fucking, a rinky-dink Flintstones movie, they still created an entire world for those. 
The Flintstones wow. went ham on their set design. They 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 tried so hard. It's amazing. The movie's worth watching just for that. Oh, like, that wall flip. Oh, fucking tight. And that was back whenever it was just expected you would do that for movies if your setting was even the slightest bit fantastic. Yeah, you're doing a super... You're doing a science fiction take on Super Mario Brothers that just takes place in a city. Time to build a world. Meanwhile, <laughs> now the Avengers fight fantasy. each other in an airport. The airport CGI. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> say it all. Also, I really wish they had gone back and increased this scene like they did the uh, the scorpion yeah. fight because it just feels so brief. And this really should be the important one. Luke Kang's our hero. He should get the balls out. Awesome, memorable fight. You know, Bihan, maybe if you didn't take 20 minutes to freeze somebody, you'd actually win a fight every now and then? No, the freeze hurts people. Look, he just fell He's over. that big of a dick. Also, Luke Charge Kang... fucking spirit bomb. Luke Kang has to get the fucking exposition again to be like, he was the element of life. Water? <laughs> this moment so recreated in uh, so a combat cartoon. I mean, it's a clever bit. Like, oh yeah, the ice guy will get killed by ice. Oh, it's very smart. It works. It's you know that dramatic like irony. Problem but it's one of those things where it's like, like yeah, that's neat. But it's also but like he's doing a, a very video. obvious. He gave he got such an obvious riddle, and he took him forever to put it together. Like, goddamn six-year-old me was like, hmm, could it be water that destroys Sub Zero? Hmm. Hmm. Pick up the goddamn buckets, Liu Kang. Humble brag over here. I'm not that smart of a kid, but every kid figured that out. Yes. I like how Goro's just been hanging out and his throne. <laughs> At last! He <laughs> just murders like five white belts. Hey, one of those guys was just wearing plaid. <laughs> that was a I've always jack. adored this montage. It's so simple. You don't have to show Goro doing anything, but... It communicates Anderson so much. The score, so fucking minutes. pounding. And... I take it back. Second unit probably filmed this before a lunch break because they forgot to do it. Because it's like the same patch stones. It's like, okay, give me five extras. Toss, 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 toss. I think it's the fact that it goes on for so yeah. long that it really sells it. Also confusing because all those guys apparently represent Earthrealm. Hey, it's Garona Cape. He just got yeah! cool. Just to let uh, folks at home know, anytime we yell yeah! in the podcast, which happens quite a bit, oh, it, it's in reference to Goro. Like, that's that's where that comes from for us. Oh, Absolutely. man, the double finger crack. Oh. Seriously, when he's not talking, look how badly animated his mouth is. It just opens and closes. Yeah, it's a real puppet mouth. Uh, I've, never, I've never really noticed that before. Once I learned Fr uh, Frank Welker did the, the grunts for Goro, I'm not able to unhear it. It just sounds like every other Welker voice. Yet it still blends with Kevin Michael Richardson's performance. Oh, yeah. It, it, it's not like it's bad. It's just, oh. It's, it's like when you hear Danny Elfman's score and you recognize, like, oh, that's Danny Elfman. It has some of his motifs. Poor Art. Poor, poor Art. We grew to like him so much in his one scene. I'm not, I'm actually joking about that. Like, it was very sad for me seeing him die as a kid. Oh, yeah. Oh, they somehow made him, like, a character in five seconds. I, I think it, Art is, like, the ultimate like, red shirt of the 90s. Well, because it's, like, a very relatable thing. He sees Goro walk in after doing some practice martial arts, and he seems like a nice guy. 
and is like, here, why don't you fight the mountain from Game of Thrones? Like, you know this man is dead before he, he even gets in the ring. to death. With like bare it's... hands. Like, not a knife or anything. He doesn't have his neck snap quick, like even Kano. He just gets pummeled and crushed until his soul gets sucked out. That's one of the examples of, like, when the no-blood, no-gore policy actually made the movie more brutal. Oh, man. Goro just lifted him up like a little God, baby to wait so to break cool. him. Ah, uh, that's the whole justification for forearms right there, just so we can do this shot. No! I love how he just bonks him like Mo Howard. <laughs> Where he's on the sledgehammer. Oh god, the revelry of Goro. Anyway, sorry, to back up to a point I was making before. So apparently there were like 15 other human fighters that were on this boat that we didn't see anything of. Like, there's a shit ton of people from Earthrealm here just to die. Which makes this more confusing, because they all get wiped out, except for like our Marine 3. And and then Shang Tsung doesn't have to actually defeat all three of them. He can just challenge one if he wins, it's over. Yours. I, every time I think too much about the the, the mechanics of Mortal Kombat's plot, I get mad, and I shouldn't. I shouldn't. I shouldn't get that into it. I zoom. Giant statues. I love that sexy Viking statue outside of Shang Tsung's castle. There is a lot of like hidden giant statues in the miniature sets and stuff. It's really neat, honestly. Like if you go around and you freeze frame the movie on the non-character scenes, you realize all the 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 location sets and all that kind of shit. Really well designed and cool. There's a great fantasy setup here. They blend really well with matte shots. Yeah, I can't remember if they filmed it or if it was only in the script, but weren't we supposed to get, like, an extended funeral scene for Art where he's buried underneath a gigantic Kung Lao statue? Yeah, something like that. I think it was in the script, but it might have been the novelization it made it to, but they they never actually put it on film. Hey, Taskmaster. I don't think there's any um, real deleted scenes from this. They just ended up not filming stuff from the script. Yeah. Yeah, I think all of those statues are, a lot of the set dressing is just old styrofoam they were able to retrofit into other shit. Yep. Well, most of the caverns really are just styrofoam uh, painted and lit to make them look like, you know, otherworldly rocks. And it works. There's a lot of movie magic happening here. Yeah, apparently a lot of techniques that were pioneered on this movie... Uh, Raiden, you're getting a little too close there. <laughs> Wait. Yeah, I'd like to see you heh 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 your way out of this one. Wait. Raiden is in this movie. What a what a weird character. <laughs> I mean, it's Christopher Lambert, so like you you have a French actor doing the God of Thunder, and this is a god to uh like Luke Kang's people, like his whole temple, and yet he's he's just a white dude that comes in, like a European white dude. <laughs> And instead of being super serious, he he has some of the movie's best one-liners. So you've got a god with like a really dry sense of odd humor on top and of all ad-libbed. Which is it's it's so weird that like 
Boone and Tobias had to like send the original script back with notes telling them to make Raiden less comedic because he was like a wacky trickster god in the, in the trap More they sent him. Yeah, they had to say like Raiden is an Asian god of thunder. He is very serious. He does not play pranks. <laughs> and and then that that just leads to Lambert just ad-libbing weird jokes for no reason. <laughs> on the well, set of Thai, on a Thai set he paid to fly to because he wanted to make Mortal story. Kombat so badly. Yeah, when they originally planned to make the movie, they're like, okay, he's the most expensive, biggest name actor we have. We'll film his parts back at the studio, and then we'll have a body double stand in for him <laughs> to do the like the long and reaction shots with all the other actors. And he heard about that, and he was so pissed off, like, no, that's stupid. It's going to be a bad product. You can tell him never actually interacting with the rest of the crew. That he, he essentially flew himself over to Thailand to be part of the movie, and his agent and, and his rep were just pissed at him. Because he essentially did it for free. He didn't even take the extra money that they should have paid him to do all the extra work. That's how much he cared. Yeah, Lambert was apparently awesome during filming this. He paid for a lot of their partying, too. Trust me. I would party with him. Dude seems paid cool. for the rap party. There is something, I think, to be said for whatever jokes they had originally written for Raiden and Lambert's ad-libbing jokes. Because there's something about the jokes that Lambert comes up with that feel weirdly in character for whatever raid it is. Yeah. Like, there's something beyond human about his humor. Right, yeah, it's kind of inconsequential to him. Like, it, he'd be bummed out if humanity got destroyed, but it's he'd be okay. Also, I want to say, this is a surprisingly great part of the movie because we have three leads. Liu Kang's obviously the most important one. But Johnny Cage gets a, a surprisingly important moment here where he gets to choose the next part of the movie. Yeah. Like, it's his, his, his choice entirely to fight Goro, and he does so because he's motivated by the death of a, we'll assume friend, we'll assume him and Art became besties offscreen. And the little motivation there, like, he, he's doing it, one, yes, he's doing it because he, he's cocky enough to think he can, but two, to protect his friends, he doesn't want them killed by Goro. Which is hilariously Johnny Cage. He thinks, yeah, I can kill anyone. Two, my friends aren't strong enough to defeat Goro, but I can. So I'll step in and fight Goro. I'm white. Yeah, I want to see more movies treat like their expanded cast this well. Yeah, this is such a randomly well-written ensemble movie where everybody kind of gets a fair shake. You don't get that in modern superhero movies half the time. Yeah, I, Sonya kind of gets cheated because she just comes to damsel, damsel in distress at the end. But yeah, up until the third act, Sonya gets a lot to do. Yeah, it's kind of like well, they kind of happened in the game, so we're just gonna do it here. Yeah, well, they shortchanged her because she gets her revenge on Kano, who is her main mark, right away. So what do you do with the character after that? Her whole thing is she she admits she doesn't trust other people, so she eventually just has to to learn to trust in her other friends. I don't know. They they kind of skimp on her. I feel like. But Johnny Cage really cool. does get a moment to choose, which is great. A side character makes a major plot point of the movie and gets to decide his own fate. When normally just the sidekick, they do whatever the hero's up to, or the heroes are reactive to stuff. In this case, no, he's actually really proactive. The movie goes into its third act because of this scene. Once the main henchman is killed, the villain really has to accelerate his plans because he doesn't have Goro anymore to do things. 
honestly, this movie is the most interesting pre-reboot Johnny Cage or Liu Kang ever were. Well, that's what I was talking about before. This movie really... Oh, my favorite joke movie. Those are five regular sunglasses. As a child, I really misunderstood how expensive sunglasses were because of this film. I didn't own a pair because I just assumed my parents couldn't afford them. Yeah, even the stuff with uh, with Johnny uh, and his whole character arc, and, like his family stuff in the recent games, is all very much mined from the kind of stuff they laid here in this movie. Yeah. It's well, kind of an attempt so to bring Johnny Cage back to this character. I also like that Johnny Cage fights like an asshole. Like, well, he's eight feet tall and has four arms. Fuck him, I'll punch him in the dick. And <laughs> Raiden's into it. I like Raiden feeling bad that he offended that random ninja guard. <laughs> Whoops, I'm not supposed to fuck with humans. I mean, honestly, this is a great way to get around the fact that Goro can't fight because of the limitations of the, the monster design. But, in reality, the audience has this expectation that Goro is the most lethal monster to ever walk. So they just kind of cheat it like this, like, okay, well, he takes a cheap shot where he's fucking pounded the nuts. And he, like, he's doubled over in pain, and then Johnny Cage sneaks away to throw him off a cliff. Well, I like how the uh, through line with most of these fights are just a... Uh... The combatants outthinking each other rather than it just coming to whoever gets the lucky shot in. Yeah. That is a problem with a lot of action flicks where it's really whoever has the most might. Whoever can just magically conjure enough willpower to keep punching the other guy is going to win. It's not a strategy or anything like that. It's just one guy punches better than the other. Yeah, I, I love John Wick, but I, I do wish there was a little bit more to the fight sometimes than just John Wick's really cool. Uh, I love John Wick too, but when they gave him the magic coat that could deflect all bullets, and that became a major part of his fighting style, it's like, okay, well, it's a little almost too video gamey, because now you have a special item you can just spam, and you don't have to actually develop other special skills on top of it. Yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the fights and. John Wick as well. Some of the fights in John Wick too. I feel like I like John Wick too. I, I like the fights in two even. I just feel like they rely so heavily on John not actually having to do a lot because he's got that coat that can block any bullet or knife. So he just he's like a video game character with regenerating health. Exactly. It's me when I play Bioshock and it's like, oh, I can just turn invisible and hide in the corner and shoot people as they walk by. Why would I do anything else? Oh, so I love yeah, Shang Tsung here going, shit, we're, we're, the production's running out of money. We need to go into the third act. This is, again, like I said, if I think too much about it, I get mad. It's like, this, that's not how it works. You gotta kill the other two guys. Come on. Also, you're just holding her. I'm simply changing the place. I'm simply changing the place, the format, the rules, the audience. Everything about it, really. It's no longer Mortal Kombat. We have shifted Theseus this into a difference. This is also now King of Fighters. Also, they do actually explain why Shane can um, choose Sonya is uh, because he's a formal, former Mortal Kombat champion, so he actually has the right to choose an opponent. He really should have started that way. It could have saved a lot of time. He should have really just picked Art, and we could have been done with the movie. <laughs> it was all on Art's shoulders the entire time. I mean, it's it's a little weird for me as an audience member because they, they clearly include clues the entire time that Shang Tsung is plotting something for Sonya. 
Yeah, there's the whole Kano setup, which is kind of weird that he picks up a guy specifically lures her in, tells her not to hurt her, and then cheers for her to beat the shit out of him, and then basically asks her to kill Kano. Like he's he's clearly rooting for Sonya to win her fights and to come away as a victor. Yet you, you know something's there, but it almost seems more like a creepy love interest, at least to me, until they get to the point where he just admits, "Oh, I'm I'm fuck, I gotta kill her so I win Mortal Kombat." But he wants that soul to taste real good first. <laughs> yeah. I, I think Shang was just looking at either Sonia or Johnny to challenge if need be. So, this is Outworld, huh? <laughs> oh, Outworld. So wacky. Honestly, God, I don't know who would want to live in this place. Mm-hmm. Oh, Mike. Okay, we already answered that riddle. Mike would want to live in Outworld. God, I love this shot. See, this is, these are special effects I, I just find have a really, really good aesthetic to them. Could you imagine if they made Doom like this? Oh, God, yeah. Oh. As far as my 90s Doom. Where is Paul Henderson's Doom? Yeah, uh, this like is what 90s Doom look made like the same way with kind of crummy special effects, a lot of really, like, well-done sets, <laughs> random fire and sparks and just, just desiccated skeleton mummies all over the place. And the Doom Slayer randomly blurting out like one-liners as you kick people through walls. I'd watch it. I'd love it. So, I love the random outworld denizens just skedaddling about. <laughs> Finding rocks still, to like, eat. Fish in outworld and stuff. I played conquest mode. This place sucks. What are you doing? Yeah, it always fascinated me as a kid that Outworld was still technically a place with, like, yeah. towns and leaders and shit. Goro and Katana are royalty there. Yeah. Oh, now we have our weird biomech battle and a goodbye terrible CGI scorpion. Why does it look like it's happening without his consent? I don't understand. Like I, said, uh, yeah, I think he's, he's surprised. He doesn't look like he wants to be part of this fight. Like, the statue has possessed him and using his biomatter to turn into a ninja. Reptile. Reptile. I want to and point the best out, fight in the fucking movie. I want to point out how strange this is. There, there's 28 and a half minutes left of the film from this point. And it really feels like it should be over, because there's this fight and the, the final battle and we're done. And it takes a half hour to get through both of those. It's always strange to me how long this movie is, because it feels like it should be like a smooth hour 20. It, yeah, we, it really feels like an 80-minuter. It, it, it's weird. It, the, the, the pacing is perfectly fine. Like, none of the added stuff uh, like makes the movie bog down or anything. But adding the two extra fight scenes does pad the time out longer than what, just what you'd expect a, a Mortal Kombat movie to be. Yeah. It gives it a sweet spot. Like I said, yeah, it feels like it moves along. It's never like I'm bored watching Mortal Kombat. There's maybe a scene or two in the opening. Like maybe the boat stuff goes on a little too long or something like that. But they, they don't drag it out. It really doesn't feel like you're waiting an hour for action to happen. It finally does. God, also the score is just so bopping right here. Ah, oh, so good. No, I'm just, I just want to want to go find a man in green, punch him, pretend he's a, he's a, he's a, he's a ninja master. Oh, it's the St. Patrick's Day. <laughs> no one can stop me. How inventive this fight is, too. Surprise kick. Back There's actually an environmental stuff. 
My favorite was always just when Liu Kang goes up to do the bicycle kick and how long it goes on. Like, as a kid, you realize it's impossible, which makes it funny, but, like, you still love it. You still are really entertained by him just kicking that guy a thousand times. And technically, wouldn't this be, like, the first American movie to really do, like, Hong Kong wire action? It was, I like believe. If I'm, not if I'm not mistaken, this was the very first American film to do Hong Kong wire work. I feel like that should be wrong, but I can't. I don't have anything to argue and against. probably it. mostly because of Xiao, right? I mean, he was a Hong Kong action guy. Stunt yeah. Guy. I'm, I'm just waiting for that bicycle kick. That's like, yeah, that's the entirety of the film me right now. I just want to see it. It's crazy to think until it reshoots, he didn't do the bicycle kick. What? Uh. So apparently all the best parts of this movie really came in the last minute when they just stuffed it with more stuff. Pretty much. The magic oh, of reshoot. Oh, the rage! <laughs> 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 25, 26, 27, 28! There's like 30 kicks in there. She knocked the demon out of him. God, that's flipped backwards. Spins like times. Turning back into a statue filled with bugs. I don't understand to this day as an adult, but I still really appreciate the weird ass texture it gives the film. Oh no, you don't. God, it's weird to think it wasn't that long ago when Reptile, Noob, and Ermac were just dudes in palette swap ninja costumes. <laughs> Well, that was the thing, right? They were just there to pad out the roster, so you just take one of the existing character models and change out some of the sprite colors and call it good. Oh, Ermac is just a glitch. Oh, even better. Error macro. The same thing that will happen to your world. And now he's a fucking all-powerful wizard made of the, the, the souls of a hundred slain combatants or something. Ermac is a fucking unstoppable force in the Mortal Kombat universe. Ermac is very the cool. The man who took Jax's arms. Take that, also, Rain. I was going to say weird, because Ermac's not really... He doesn't have any sort of impact on Mortal Kombat non-game media, does he? Like, I don't think he's been in the animated films, no. movies. No. He, he was in Annihilation. Oh, he, he's one of the dudes who gets, like, dropped in the trap doors whenever fucking Shao Kahn is doing his Dr. Evil speech. Oh, really? Oh, man. Yeah, he's As one of the again, with a very cursory knowledge of Mortal Kombat, that's so weird to know that those characters actually matter. I can't remember if Ermac appeared in Defenders of the Realm or not. See, not... Yeah. Like, this is, like... You know, Windows 95 CGI, but <laughs> it's a screensaver, yeah. But like, it really does look cool, and that's still like an insane shot for 1995. Like, oh, it flies in. It has the quality of like, it has the feel of like an old Harry House and stop motion yeah. effect or something. Like, early CGI reminds me a lot of stop motion, where the artifice is part of the just part of the appeal. Yeah. Do you think people are like in, in let's say twenty years are gonna look back at nineteen ninety five films and, and kind of adore and idolize the piss poor CGI for, for being charming? Probably. I mean people made fun of what what we now consider very special effects from, you know, the forties and fifties, like in the seventies and eighties. 
Like, those were shitty monster movie effects back then. Nowadays, we look at that shit and go, how did they do that practically? See, that's the nice thing about the internet. It's going to be fun to have those receipts in, like, 40 years when people go back and like, oh, man, <laughs> god damn it. The Padre scene looks so fake, and I can be like, well, hold on, let me pull up all of the reviews from 1999 talking about the Phantom Menace. That wasn't the CGI they were mad about. Here's this post from 20 years ago proving you're a douchebag. Well, it's, I mean, that stuff's always happened. Like, we've always had, you know, critics out there reviewing stuff and making side comments on different quality. But we didn't have access to a lot of it. If you weren't born in that era, if you didn't live in the 1950s, you wouldn't know what the newspapers were like. You just kind of get the homogenized version of it from decades later, what survived. And I'm very excited to see how that changes in the future, where, like, two people arguing will both come back and find different articles talking shit about what the fuck movie just came out and have a valid point because they have a, a distinct viewpoint from the time it came out that experienced it and didn't like it or did like it. My friends will come. Arguments will be meaningless in the future as they are now. They're already here. Yeah, I... It, it, it's hilarious going to, uh, like, looking up old archived Usenet forums from, like, the 80s and seeing people pissed off about Crisis on Infinite Earths and the anatomy lesson and shit. Like, what the fuck? Swamp Thing isn't a man? Fuck you! <laughs> My whole childhood's been ruined. It really gives you perspective uh, about whenever you read bad internet discourse. Like, ah, everything comes, back, comes around and stupidity dies. Johnny Cage. No, the Twitter villain of the day is being enshrined right now. There's going to be a Twitter library just one day for every day of the year. There's going to be some asshole who just lives forever because they had a really stupid opinion they threw out there to a couple hundred thousand people. <laughs> that, that sounds like something from an old science fiction story. In our society, every day we hate one person. And because of that, we have gotten rid of war. That's Twitter, that Jamie. Haven't you episode. been on Twitter? <laughs> Every day, there's one main character on Twitter, and we all hate that person. And then we move on to a new person who's just as bad, but in a different, unique way. Were you ever mad Chang didn't fight with his coat on? Right? <laughs> I, I wish he put on his fucking uh, Mortal Kombat 1 eye makeup. Fucking Like, gosh, he uses Chang. the coat like fucking Bullseye in the Daredevil movie. <laughs> Again, to nitpick. We've had Kano just walk into a fight with a knife. Goro has extra arms. I, I feel like fucking Chang Sung should have pulled out a submachine gun and been like, this is my <laughs> item, where's yours? Oh, it's just the end of Wizards. He just points out a pulls out a gun, <laughs> shoots it in the head. And done. The most Blood strong magic victory. is <laughs> uh, And once again, we get Techno Syndrome. Uh, so Techno Syndrome by the Immortals is, is basically the de facto Mortal Kombat sound now. And it's so weird to think we had, like, two Mortal Kombat games before, well, technically three, that didn't rely on that. I, I mean, I'm going to be bummed out if the new Mortal Kombat comes out and doesn't have, like, a sad, instrumental, slow version of Techno Syndrome over the credits. <laughs> I still it, want it, this to play during the final battle. Right? There is apparently an orchestral version of Techno Syndrome in, in the new Mortal Kombat movie. I heard it in the trailer a little bit, so I assume they were going to use it, but it could have just been marketing, too. Apparently, that's the first bit of blood we've seen in the movie as well. That's a surreal fucking thought. Just just a droplet. It almost looks like he just has a, like a sweaty lip more than a bloody lip. <laughs> it's very Sanjuro. Nintendo... It's Nintendo blood there. <laughs> 
But uh, yeah, the MPAA was apparently tight on them. They, they designed the movie around being afraid of the rating boards because they knew they were going to get extra attention due to the controversy of the games and how violent they were. And what a weird needle they had to thread there. They had to make a game that was violent, so the fans were happy, but not so violent the MPAA could nail them like they wanted to and make an R-rated game and, and stop them from getting younger fans into the movie, which would make them profitable. Uh, yeah, New, and New Line was it. aware children played Mortal Kombat. <laughs> well, if you go back and look at the ads for Mortal Kombat, it's like school kids clandestinely passing around copies of Mortal Kombat so they don't get yelled at by the teachers for having it. They... they New kids were in Mortal Kombat, and they advertised to children, even though it was supposedly too violent for them. The most iconic poster for the first game was Kano reaching out of the arcade cabinet to grab a small boy. Kano and Raiden, which always amused me. Like, why, <laughs> Thunder God? Shouldn't you have been Scorpion? Like, the get over here, kid? We want to beat you up? No, this is, this is where they cruise on the weekends. Also, when you were a kid... This scene is the coolest shit. <laughs> Honestly, for me, I forget this scene happens. Like, every time I watch the movie, I forget Liu Kang has to go through, like, a bunch, a bunch of grunts from different time periods to get to the final boss fight. Oh, this is super video game style. Oh, oh, you beat me in the first round. Well, the second round, here's a bunch of smaller guys you have to beat up first. And then you get my second health bar. But I'm oh, fast this is now. So boss and maybe fight. shining red. Oh, I'm surprised they were able to resist just having all of the dead combatants pop up out of those things and fight Lou. I'm really surprised movies don't do that more often. Like, the Marvel movies, I just assumed they were going to have, like, every dead villain pop back up in Endgame for a cameo fight. I can see I'm, just, I'm, I'm just surprised movies don't do that more often, especially since, you know, we, we have such interconnected universes and nostalgia for characters of the past. And Resurrections? You think they'd do, like, a Victory Lab movie... Yeah, three entries in where they bring back all of the dead characters and have them fight one more time. Can you talk about uh, the glory of Shao's hair? <laughs> what a weird God. poem you've just written, Mike. Face your a, lot, a lot of conditioner went into this. It's Liu Kang really worked on that look. Dude, Liu Kang was, going chronologically, probably my first movie crush. I mean, look he's glistening. Picks. He's in incredible shape. I'm mad at how healthy he is. That's why you watch Beverly Hills Ninja, right? Absolutely. I'm very much the Chris Farley character, yeah. yeah. Without the heroics. Or the then none times. of us have watched Street Fighter The Legend of Chun-Li. Nope. Uh, you know, and this dude was also in DOA, so being in fighting game movies just kind of became his thing after a while. Kind of a bummer. Especially since, like, fighting movies never had that much respect and video game movies never had respect. Even now, every time a video game movie comes out, they always talk about, is this going to be the one that breaks the curse and is good? Even though I've argued there have been several pretty entertaining video game movies by this point, with all varying degrees of merit. Silent Hill is practically art. Yeah. Silent Hill is, is very goddamn spooky. I, I'm surprised at how many people really hate that film. I, I will... I'm sure we'll we'll do a commentary on that one day. We'll get into it, but yeah, that's that will baffle me for the rest of my life. Honestly, it's not like video games are especially hard to adapt. I don't really buy that. Just they're gone about it in such stupid ways. I mean, there's been amazing scripts for video game movies like Halo and whatnot. 
that just don't get made for unrelated reasons. It's, it's, it's really almost like the same same argument of, um, well, female action movies don't make money because, like, Elektra and Catwoman exist. Like, oh, yeah, because sometimes bad movies happen. Yeah. Is you Atomic Bomb? You got it. Or Atomic Blonde. I said Atomic Bomb. <laughs> you knew what I was talking about. Also, uh, I, I, I just, just want to were talking about humanity. Also, that I just want to lament for a moment that we, we get Bioshock, the film, just because they're afraid about it being too expensive and R-rated. Uh, <sighs> I studios don't like printing money. I mean, we didn't get a Halo movie because the people involved couldn't agree on who would get richer from the deal. Yeah, I'm, I'm just amazed that video games are incredibly popular. Well, the amount of money you make off video games, a popular AAA title right now is astounding. And I'm just so weirded out we don't have a constant stream of video game properties like we have comic book movies right now. I mean, I'm, I'm sure we'll get there at some point just because of the popularity, but I'm, I'm just astounded it hasn't happened yet. Yeah, it's, well, they say it's very maddening. They still ha don't seem to have quite gotten the exact formula down yet, but they are getting smarter with it. We're seeing a lot more video game movies that still aren't particularly good, but they're A, not spectacular shame movies like they used to be back in the day, and they're going about them in a much more logical way. First and foremost, in doing video games that have plots and characters and not trying to make Tetris happen for the 11th time. Still trying. Ooh, really, Scott Tetris was trying stuff. for years to make a Monopoly movie? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, when I look at uh, things like Uncharted or the new Tomb Raider movies, like, that, that, that stuff doesn't really excite me, but it's like, okay, at least you figured out. Make them movies. Like, Prince of Persia is kind of eh, but you watch Prince of Persia without knowing that it's a video game movie. You just think it was an okay Jake Gyllenhaal action movie. Yeah, Even a... Sonic. Oh, yeah. yeah. Very much Sonic. Sonic takes very little, I feel like, from the games, but they understand, like, this should be at least a film. Yeah, I Sonic's point a out, Oh, man. Falling on the spikes. <laughs> what a, this, this is one of, like, the most memorable bad guy dies things to me in, in my childhood. Just... I was very afraid of spikes for a long time after this movie appearing out of the ground that I might become a mummy upon. <laughs> become a, become mummy a mummy upon. upon. I think they're getting closer with video game movies to getting the right people. Like, they're still not getting, I think, the right combination. Like, Tomb Raider isn't a bad movie. It's just kind of okay. But it's closer. Are we talking like, the new Tomb Raider or the, 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 the new one. 90s one? Yeah. Boy, I can remember so little about that film. It's very forgettable, which is kind of like the the problem aspect of it. But it's yeah. it's closer to having like the right people involved that that care. Just executives still don't quite get it, so you get a lot of probably weird notes. Don't still have everybody creatively that are jiving with the games. There's a lot of overthought still. Well, the newest thing that weirds me out is, and not to to slight some of the projects that are coming up here. But a, a lot of video games are being thought of as, hey, what if we made these into a series instead so we can capture all the parts of the game and extend the drama? So, you know, you play a video game and you might spend 45 hours on a game, whereas it you know, movies an hour and a half. Like, The Last of Us 2 is being transformed into an HBO series. 
that very well could work. It could be great, but it just seems very odd to me to take that, which could be easily compacted into a two-hour story and say, no, 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 let's spend eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen episodes with these characters doing their thing in the zombie world. I don't know. It seems weird to me that we're going with trying to embrace all the aspects of a game and drawing them out rather than finding ways to transform them into proper movies. Like, we just never quite mastered that step, so we're just going to move on into a different medium. <laughs> I think it all, it always, it just comes back to the thought process that gave birth to this movie, which is just, just make the thing. Yeah. That's what's always troubled me so much, like, about. Uh, Super Mario and the constant uh, refrain that oh you, you couldn't do just do a Mario movie like the mythology is too weird and there's no story and the characters are really shallow and you know how how would you even go about doing that it's like you, you just take a Mario game and you make a little animated movie out of it yeah we, we these char- we've been with these characters for a very long time there's about seven Mario RPGs at this point that flesh out the entire <laughs> and everyone's personalities and what that world is like. It's actually not that easy, that, that difficult at this point. I don't think so. I feel that's like what you would do with Sonic and all that. Yeah. You, you can just treat the movie as kind of an Elseworlds of the property. So you get some of the stuff people love and recognize, just enough so they're into it and the fans aren't pissed. And then just do your own goddamn thing. Make a, a proper movie around that world and instead too many people get hung up on the idea of oh we have to make it the property we have to include all the fan favorite moments people which is a mess uh, because you're just you're trying to translate something it doesn't transpose properly you gotta you gotta make it a movie first and then worry about if it's the video game later and more often than not you get the production psyching themselves out so hard because it's a video game movie that they either go hard from the game, they don't understand which parts from the game to keep versus not. They, they're trying to go, how do we break the video game curse of, of yeah. making this, that they just make such stupid choices. I think of Max Payne. <laughs> oh, my, my go-to is Assassin's Creed, the most overthought, somehow pretentious video game movie ever. It's like you change a couple things about Assassin's Creed. It's like, wow, they actually did this like really cool multimedia thing, but they they just tried too hard. Now, even even with Sonic, like I mean, we we got that with like the first trailer with how big of a hard left turn they took with the design. It's like, whoa, whoa, this isn't a cartoon or anything. <laughs> Like, th- this is an all-new Sonic for an all-new generation. That first Sonic design was uh, concerning. Oof. I'll say that much. And I mean, we discussed Doom, which is both loving, like lavishly loving to Doom, and also nothing like Doom. I mean, oh God, look at Annihilation, where none of the tone or the feel or anything of the game is represented, but. Uh, a, a key card is a big plot point because that's something in the games. We we put in the Easter eggs. You're happy now, right? I kind of think of it. Okay, think think of like GoldenEye and how successful the game was compared to other random game versions of movies. It's it, imagine it the other way around. If you took GoldenEye the game and tried to make it into GoldenEye the film, it wouldn't work. 
like the level design and all that stuff, they took some of the best elements of the movie and figured out, like, okay, we can make this game-like. But you couldn't do it the other way around. You couldn't have, like, a 40-minute scene where James Bond rides a tank around St. Petersburg and does nothing else. Well, I think, like we were, like you were saying earlier about, like, just doing the thing. Like, the, the reason GoldenEye works is because they made a really good shooter and worked about and worried about it being a movie tie-in later. I still love the story that the multiplayer was like a secret from the developers even. Like <laughs> they made it and they didn't tell the bosses like they had done this extra thing. They were fucking around with it and then Oh shit, yeah, throw it in. Like it was a last minute bonus feature. And boy, can you imagine Goldeneye that did not have the multiplayer? Like that'd be a fun game everyone would have forgotten about in like, you know, a week. I, you know, Cody, I think you actually did hit on kind of a good example, which is if you did reverse Goldeneye. <laughs> Don't sound surprised. <laughs> if you did reverse Goldeneye um, and it was a game that became a movie, if you look at it that way, that's like the movie would actually be a very good adaption of the game. Like it has the stuff from the game, but it's the essence of it. Like he doesn't. There's not a full level of him riding around a tank, but the tank's there as part of utilizing the same exact story point. Yeah. Like, it has all of the same elements, but they're not thrown in there as, oh, that's a reference to the game. They're just a natural part of the story boiled down. Well, to be fair, they if it had been done that way, they would have written... had. They would have had to have write in a scene where Bond and Famke Jansen just slap each other. Slappers, Slappers only. only. No goddamn. you around cheating. the jungle for like forty minutes. Did you uh, find that fight too hard? Was I was I just a, a dumb child, or was was her? Oh, I just I just tough. killed her on the train, so I didn't have to do that. Oh yeah, tough guy. Oh uh, my my memories of watching my dad struggle in the jungle as <laughs> James Bond. The jungle level is so hard. Like it's, it, I, I watched my dad play that when I was like seven, and that's still like a a, a scar that runs. To- <laughs> <laughs> that that and trying to figure out how the fuck you end the first level because it's not immediately apparent that you jump off the fucking cliff. Oh yeah, it take like I ran back and forth for a while, and they'd like spawn new enemies, and be like, "I've killed everyone here. What do you want me to do?" That, that that was a game that kind of required you to have seen GoldenEye and remember how that scene ends. Oh, right, yeah, he bungee jumps off of here for some reason. Also, do you remember Shadows of the Empire? There, there was like a, a, uh, a sewer level in that game that just made me... I think that was the first time I ever rage quit in my life. Uh, I don't know if anyone remembers that particular part the of the train game. train level used to drive me nuts because I used to jump the train and then tough. fall off. Right, yeah, it was like impossible to hit your platform you correctly. Yeah, I remember that kind of fondly though. I wasn't too bad at it. I remember getting mad at it because I fell off a couple of times. It was it was later stuff. Like I think I got my ass kicked by Boba Fett in one of the fights or something. Fucking IG eighty eight. Shit, man, Shadows of the Empire was one of those blockbuster rentals that would always go back after like a day because I just could not go past the first level. Really? Oh, the stuff on Hoth is so fun. Oh, so. My my love of Wampus comes from from that 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 game. <laughs> also, getting to blow up Tie Fighters in that was the most fun. Good game. Love. So I want to say featured score guitarist Buckethead. Oh, how did we not mention that? Fucking Buckethead just got crammed into this movie. 
Because <laughs> the studio really wanted Buckethead. They specifically wanted the soundtrack to have a guitar battle between Eddie Van Halen and Buckethead. They couldn't quite get that, so they sold for Buckethead. I'm pretty sure the only reason Buckethead's even remembered is because of this movie. Well, it, oh, he's got a pretty distinct look. I'm going to go with the I'm right. <laughs> I was going to say, what a sad note to leave the movie on. I don't know. He's got a pretty distinct <laughs> look. No one talks anymore. Like, Well, we've said all we can about Buckethead. We're done. Piece of shit. Good guitarist, <laughs> though. I want to live in the bucket. I want to live in the alternate universe where this the 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 various uh, recording studios they went to all got in on this, and the soundtrack was all Buckethead and Janet Jackson. All Buckethead all the time. So Jamie, I think you promised us something. That's true. I hope you have the lyrics. <clears throat> Pulled up because there's a lot to remember of what's being said in in this theme song. Dun 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 Mortal Kombat. Test your might. Test your might. Kano. Liu Kang. Raiden. Johnny Cage. Scorpion. Sub Zero. Sonya. Mortal Kombat. Da 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 da. Fight. Can I you like remix how... this song, Jamie? We've got forty-five seconds left. You got to fill. See, this is why I like you. When you started, though, you were still pretty hype because it's impossible <laughs> not to be hype with that song. <laughs> so you noticed that that I that was like trying to like that was like trying to not flex a muscle. Like no, no, Jamie, don't get pumped. You cannot. It's so hard. Mortal Kombat. <sighs> I think doing sad RoboCop theme was easier. Just now I'm thinking back to, to <laughs> Johnny Cage Cash. Just, <laughs> I'll combat myself today. Uh, his fatality is he uh, lights a forest on fire and then throws you into it. What have I become? My four-armed man. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone I love has their spine pulled out in the end. I mean, they is this what they can they can they, they can have this DLC for Mortal Kombat 12. There can just be Johnny Cage Cash who comes out and <laughs> sings us a sad old song while beating people up with his guitar. Is that more ridiculous than a Rambo being in there? No, it is not. <laughs> I'm glad this is where we're ending the commentary. Yeah. Well, folks, that was Mortal Kombat 1995. We'll have a new version very soon, and I'm very excited about that. But it can never truly replace what a silly, wonderful movie we've just experienced. I hope you've enjoyed this. If you want more of Box Office Pulp, you can find us at boxofficepulp.com. We have a website, uh, or Box Office Pulp, the handle on Twitter, either one. We're even on Facebook, although we probably don't care about Facebook opinions. Uh... (laughs) 
they're just being honest. Stitcher, Google, you name us. Look at Box Office Pulp. You'll probably find more of us. We've got plenty of other commentaries you can enjoy or singular episodes that aren't based on us just discussing a movie while it's playing in the background. We even do some interviews on occasion. It's neat. We have other material. Please come back. Please like us. Please. Please. This is normally the part where someone tells me I forgot like five different services, so I'm surprised no one bumped in and be like, hey, man, you forgot Tumblr. You'll find us on things. <laughs> You'll find us. Anyways, folks. That's a wrap. Get the hell out of here. Toasty! You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. I don't don't care if you put this in. I just want to do this for my own amusement. Toasty. (laughs) Toasty! Jesus, if, if you hear a toasty like that and then press the special moves, um, you you just die. Like, in real life, you just fall over fucking dead in the in seven In seven days, Scorpion will drag you to hell. Ed Boone just walks in into your house with fucking plastic bags and his shoes and a gun in his hand. <laughs> oh, just fucking kill me, Ed. Just fucking kill me. Just finish me, man. Just fucking finish me. <laughs> Okay, now I want to fucking meme that as the end of The Departed, <laughs> but it's fucking Scorpion Sub-Zero. Just, just Sub-Zero coming home, like, in slacks and a t-shirt. And just He's got a giant-ass thing get inside of a bag. Just seeing Scorpion there in his house with a gun. Oh, Hanzo. Oh, oh Hanzo, man. Oh, oh, God. Oh. Fuck. <laughs> This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show.